Hello and welcome to the third and final episode in this podcast series with Quilter. My name is Richard Lander of CityWire. Uh, the series is called Keep It in the Family and the aim is to discover how advisors can attract younger generations and what to keep in mind when it comes to shaping conversations around inheritance planning. Today I'm joined by Paul Young, Head of Business Consultancy at Quilter, and Nick Bromley, who's a Director of IP Wealth Management, a national firm based in Yorkshire. So welcome both. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining me. Uh, and let's start by looking at what is the good, bad and ugly of reaching out to f- families. I mean, why? Why do you have to do this? Uh, I'll start with you, Nick. Yeah, I, I, I guess the, the sort of first thing to start is actually when we do get into that position where we can create longer term relationships with the, the family and the, the extended family, it's almost the, the highest compliment that a client can make for us from our point of view. It's uh, it's hard enough for anyone to talk about their finances, but for them suddenly to, to sort of pass us down to the different generations is, is, is the, the best sort of... Uh, feedback that we can get as an advisor. Why do we do it? Well, there's two reasons. One, you know, it allows us to continue to doing a great job for for the clients and their kids. Uh, Hopefully that demonstrates some level of uh, value to them. Uh, But from our point of view, it allows that advice journey to go on for a little bit longer. Excellent. Uh, And from your point of view, Paul, how, how does Quilter go about trying to deepen these relationships within a family? Uh, so there's various ways. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate in my role because I get to work with firms like Nick um, who actually th- put theory into practice. Um, sometimes it's about um, sharing what, what works well, um, but also what doesn't work very well, which I'm, I know we're going to cover later. So what, Quilter, what we're trying to do at the moment is use the, the concept of personas. So trying to get um, life stages that people can associate with and talking to clients in terms of behavioral science of things like, does this sound like you? Are these the sort of things that resonate with you? And are these some of the challenges to try and help that conversation open up a little bit more easily at the moment? Right. And when's the, when is the right time to get these younger family members on board? I mean, one minute you're shooing them off to nursery, the next you're driving them off to university. Uh, is it then or is it beyond then when they're, when they're earning? How soon can you start? Well, I, I personally feel it's never—it's never. It's, never a, you know, it's like having children. There's never a right time to have one, is there? <laughs> Yourself, you know. If you keep putting it off, you're never going to have them. Um, so it's more about the actual the, the finding that either a campaign which is run by the firm to actually help leverage that, or listening to your clients' key life events, which I'm sure Nick will, will expand on. Yeah, I think the real world answer kind of concurs a little bit what what Paul was saying, and and my view is it's it's as good as the relationship that you've got with the client but it's also heavily dependent on the life stage that the client's at. I also relate to the, I don't know if you can remember it, but there was a, there was a TV advert in the, the 90s or the noughties that involved Peter Kay. And basically his mum was in his 50s and, and suddenly he's rushing his mum off to the nursing home. We don't want to be going down that route yeah. where we're making clients who are relatively young in the grand scheme of things, you know, almost thinking they're beyond, you know, certain things. So it depends on the life stages. And we, we do things, things in, I guess, several different ways. So for our clients that, that are in the, the sort of the maturity phase, getting into their 50s and thinking about retirement, that is probably where that, that process starts. And typically we'd reach out to their family members by introducing our mortgage services. Uh, because typically those people were in their 50s will have kids that are looking to get onto the housing ladder. So that that's the first element that we kind of would reach out to. Then the second element is when our clients are advancing a little bit beyond there and their kids are in their, their 20s and 30s, and maybe going into their 40s. So typically clients are in the 60s. Uh, we introduced a document called the financial passport. 
Uh, and this effectively is a document for the for the clients to be able to to sort of write down what their assets are. Because I think what we find is the reason why families don't talk naturally about money is ultimately there's a as an as a an economy as a country we're just not very good at talking about money. So we we use this as a platform for the for the parents to to promote what assets they've got in as broad or narrow ways they want to do on a piece of paper that they literally can say to their kids, look. I'm not going to die anytime soon, but if I do, this document is really, really important. It's going to be in the safe and this tell you everything, single thing that I've got. So I'll talk to you about the most important person to me, which is my financial advisor, who has the most touch points on my data and my financial knowledge. It'll give you the solicitor's details, where our will's held. It'll talk about the life assurance, the savings, the various different assets that that client holds. Uh, and by the way, we think it's a really good idea that you speak to that financial advisor just so you can start that journey of understanding who owns our financial data. And we do that very well. It sounds a, a simple concept. I mean, is it literally a piece of paper or is there any yeah. technology behind yeah. it? Yeah, at the moment, it's simply a piece of paper that's held in a held in the, the client's safe. And, and it's just a, it's a springboard to have the conversation more than anything else. Nick, Nick's, Nick's, Nick's being very modest there, actually, Richard, which is what he's done is he's thought about things, not just from the, in, in case of death, it's almost like a, in case of emergency break glass document. So more and more is lasting power of, of, of attorney. Uh, people, as you know, are, are surviving major health incidents, but in that period, you know, so it's not like the old days of you have a heart attack and that's it. Often it's they're in comas or in under some some supervision and, and people worry. Um, so there's that sort of in, in case of emergency break glass. So it's there. Also, it drives the behavior that way. Right. But how, how do you turn that key? I mean, yes, you know, we all know we should get lasting power of attorney and stuff like that. But it's horrible to admit that you might one day have to use it. How do you, how do you sort of persuade your clients that? You know, now's the time to, to get it done. And yeah, well, the, the answer is that document, isn't it? That's the start of the conversation. I guess our, our next bit is a, is a recent process that we've mandated with our advisors that is, is, I guess, pushing it into clients in their 70s now, really, to mandate a conversation around inheritance tax planning. Uh, and for every single review that we generate, which we generate a substantial amount of them, uh, we, we see those clients, for any client that's over the age of 60, we are now mandating that all of the financial advisors produce a very detailed report around inheritance tax. And from then, for every single client that's got an inheritance tax issue, that then goes to our inheritance tax team that then discusses the solutions with the clients. Yeah, and I think at the moment, I don't know if you agree, but the, the, perhaps people think inheritance tax is for rich people, but of course they forget about the value of their asset. But actually it's the other thing about welfare. It's what's the unintended impacts on my own welfare and the, and the welfare benefits and also the passing on of wealth in the most appropriate way. Classic examples that we've had in the past is even if you've got a, a wealthy estate, Richard, is that the, the lawyer might step in. And the first thing they do is, is freeze the estate. That freezes the fees at a time when advisors are working probably twice or three times as hard for their clients. And I've seen examples where the lawyer has thought in the best way, well, we'll, we'll decommission that asset and pass it on to the other half. Right. Yeah. No, we did some research in the States and we had a similar episode to this over there and they said that apparently 70% of advisors get sacked when the next generation takes part. So you've got to get into, how do you get into their minds? I mean, you, you've got this simple document which sounds great because it's simple, but they're saying, oh, well, I've got this on my app and, you know, uh, there's no fees on this app. So how, how do you say, how do you get them on board? Well, the, the onboard, the good thing is actually once you do get in to see clients, uh, their, their kids, is actually that the trust is there. 
So that's the one thing that's hardest to do in, in, in our industry is gain a client's trust. Uh, and I think you've all automatically got that embedded trust with with the, the the family members. Now, obviously, the discussion around value for money in terms of the fees that they pay is the same no matter who. You know that that irrespective of whether it's a, a legacy client or someone else, that's a day to day thing in terms of articulating value, which is probably a separate conversation. Which I think is what advisors are probably worst at is being able to articulate to a, cal- a client their actual value. So, so yeah, I just don't see it as being any different. It's a simple process where we, once again, talk about the benefits which Quilter have helped us with in the past with, with various different sort of help, specifically now around the, the sort of dynamic planner reports that are going out there. There's a huge chunk in there around what value we actually add as financial advisors. The, the, the issue is about the state, sorry, Richard, but the, the, there's, a, there's a cultural piece as well, which is you know, the elephant in the room is it's not just difficult for financial advisors to talk or remember to talk about money, it's our class and history in the UK. You know, they're all saying that uh, there's only two things inevitable in life, death and taxes, uh, and they don't come in that order. Uh, how much How much of tax, is tax a part of this? You mentioned inheritance tax, but that's only one tax. Uh, should we be talking about that or lifestyle topics, uh, lifestyle events, uh, when, when you're spreading this amongst the family? Absolutely. I mean, but it, but it's the trigger point that you go and speak to that family member for in the first place. So if the, the first conversation we have is, is earlier on down that client journey, then it will be about mortgages. But then our extended services, that client will have known us for probably 20 years before their clients pass away. If it's when the client's in their 60s and what we're talking about is, is you know, where their assets are, then very much. It's about talking to them on a very broad basis around what tax shelter that the client's got their monies in at the moment, what that means to them. You know, what happens if the client's got their money sat in a retirement account when they pass away? What does that mean to them as a as an intended beneficiary of of, of that client's money? So it's so massively around the, the tax side of things. And then once again, as you, you quite rightly say, the inheritance tax side of it, you know, what more or what better way to articulate the value to them by telling them you just saved them half a million quid in inheritance tax? I'm not sure there'd be many clients that wouldn't want to use our services after that. So there's a behavioural thing about the amount of times I've seen families distraught because money's being tied up in the wrong places or not released quickly. So just by getting the right trusts in place. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be for the uber rich. This is about securing and making sure people have the money available at the right time, not covered up in red tape. And I think we under, under, underestimate that sort of peace of mind of ease as well. I think that, that's massively part of it. Right. I mean, do you, these are not scare stories, but they are sort of warnings of what happens if you don't plan appropriately. Do you use these to persuade clients, say, this, the worst case, if you don't do X? Yeah, we do. And and, and once again, we, we, we have regular sort of quarterly meetings within our sort of practice. And, and ironically, the last one that we had was on Friday where we actually had a, uh, a solicitor in to talk to us just really about the consequences of getting some of the simple stuff wrong. You know, not having wills updated since 2017 and various other bits and bobs that, that have massive sort of implications on the clients. So, yeah, using examples of, of, you know, the impact of getting it wrong is a huge part of. I mean, 2017 sounds recently. Why, uh, says someone who wrote his will in 2017. Why, why do you have to change it, it, it just six years later? It's to do with the, the, the sort of inheritance tax relief on property that was introduced in 2017. Okay. So that if you haven't got it done, I suggest that you perhaps <laughs> relook at your will. I'll be in touch afterwards. Uh, but, but you don't have to scare there, Richard. So you, you, you can actually, I mean, one of the nicest uh, uh, intro lines that I've heard is is the four box question to a client just saying, 
of your estate that you've built up, how much do you want to go to friends, family, charities, and taxman? You tell me, you choose. And it's just getting that understanding. I mean, there's other, I mean that's just about once you've got purchase to, to think about it, that agreement. But get the client to talk to you, because let's face it, most people don't really want to give money to the taxman, really. Uh, well, certainly not. I mean, getting your clients on board, you've dealt with these people maybe for 10, 20 years, you've got their trust. How do you then coach them or persuade them to say, you've got to have this chat with your with your children? Yeah, we do it very badly, which is why we've kind of mandated these processes in to, to, to allow us to uh, to make it part of the agenda is the honest answer, because it's it, either it's a hard topic for the advisors to, to talk to the clients that they've known for ages, uh, or either it's a hard topic topic for the clients to, to talk to their children about. So the, the answer is we could probably do a lot better on that if coaching the clients was the right answer. I actually do believe that, that mandating it and creating it as part of our processes is probably the way forward for us. We worked with a guy called Charlie Green, who you might remember wrote the book called The Trusted Advisor. And one of the things that we, we raised was you know, the, the difference in cultures between the States and the UK when it comes to accelerating trust. Now, what we've learned is four words that work really well in the UK psyche. And those are at the risk of, okay? So we know that, for example, coaching advisors to say, look, almost like that clearing the throat. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I need to talk to you about <clears throat> what happens if uh, it can be a bit tricky. But if you do the, at the risk of talking about something that may be uncomfortable to you, can we talk about where you want the money going to if anything happens to you? At the risk of, perhaps, talking about the bleeding obvious, but at the risk of, and it's quite simple, but also the next level we say, by the way, when I leave today, Mr. so let's take the, the older client talking to their sort of mid-40s or 30s client, uh, son and daughter. It might be tricky because, as you've said, Richard, it might be, hang on a minute, even if it's the best thing, they're going to see I'm interfering with their lives, I'm th telling them what to do, I'm, I'm perhaps not thinking they're financially astute, I'm judging them. Whereas actually say to them, look, when you, when you want to raise this conversation with your son and daughter, just intro with at the risk of and insert what you think the most appropriate response is. So at the risk of you thinking that I'm telling you what to do with your money or at the risk of trying to tell you the blimmin' obvious. And funnily enough, because we raise it behaviourally, it takes out a lot of the sting in the room. Similar the other way around. If I'm sort of the 40 or 50 year old thinking you need to talk to mum and dad because it's all, it's all over the shop, they, you know, well, they're going to take my advice. So again, I do the mum and dad at the risk of you thinking I'm just after your money, so I'm not, at the risk of. So it's those four words we know work really, really well. Now, both your firms are basically just collections of individuals. So you know, you're going out to see people, you're going out to see people. How do you spread this best practice across everyone so that everyone is getting more or less the same level and quality of advice? And once again, that the, the, the answer for us, it will be different to, to Paul, is very much A, the relationships that we have with our advisors. We're a, we're a very close firm that communicates really well. Uh, and, and once again, secondly, is this, this mandation of processes. Uh, it, it, these type of discussions are hard for me because I'm the most processed person in the world. So, you know, however... You know, I accept that, that, you know, our advisors have their own minds, but, but we need to allow them a process to follow that allows them not to fail in this scenario. And, and my view is, you know, by mandating this conversation and making sure that, you know, we have these, these legacy conversations and generational planning conversations, that's the only way that as a process person I feel comfortable with. So a good relationship with our advisors and, and a mandation of, of process. But do they ever come back and say, 
uh, <laughs> we love your process, Nick. It's not working with this client or that client. I yeah. need to absolutely adapt it. yeah, and we're flexible with stuff like that, and 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 we're not expecting this to work in in every single time. I mean, we have a uh, to put things into relevant uh, in, into some sort of context. We feel as though we're very good at our job, but we only have one point seven clients per household. So we're not even getting all of the husbands and wives at the moment. So that, that we're pretty good at what we're doing. I'm just being open and honest around what that looks like. So obviously sometimes you'll have a, a partner within the household that has no assets to invest. So that, that compensates for some of it, but we need to be much better. And we accept that, that the only way of us doing that is, is this mandation of, of processes. I mean, do you even find that one spouse is reluctant to talk to another spouse? Yeah, there's, there's occasionally, yeah, but it's, it's probably more linked to the poor planning prior to us being involved in a relationship where all of the assets have been held in, yeah. in one person's name, uh, which obviously makes it quite hard for us to then make sure that it's efficiently sort of organized. But yeah, so, and sometimes occasionally people have independent sort of uh, planning needs and independent different advisors and that's that's their prerogative. So, so it, it's scaling is, is always the hard one and, that, and, you know, and it, it, it's never easy. There are, it all depends on the business model. So whether it's in-person, digital, hybrid, uh, where your core target market is, it can vary. But what we've tried to do via sort of business consultancy and with the support of Quilter to accelerate it is a couple of things. Number one, funnily enough, in your terms of businesses, put lines in there that the firm has to delete around probate, uh, sort of uh, the, the financial passport. You know, what part of the things you get is this? And if you don't do it, then you have to delete it. Funnily enough, if it's on there, you might actually think, oh, perhaps that's part of our service. If it's part of our service, I might have been in danger of describing it to a client that actually says, by the way, you do realize as part of our ongoing service, we do this financial passport service. So scaling it in, in a default nudging type way is one. Second thing is actually making sure that you've got some, some graphic that talks about life stages, that connects to people. You know, it's about wealth, it's about preserving your wealth, no matter where you are, because actually sometimes, and then getting people, as I mentioned personas earlier, People like you, like me at the moment, you know, I'm a taxi driver to the kids. I haven't got enough time to think about stuff. I always think I'll get around to that on Saturday. Saturday comes, it doesn't, I'll do it on Sunday. Then Sunday I think, oh, Sunday lunch. And then it's another another week and another month. But actually people like you said they valued a once a year sort of drains up to see how the best way. Okay, that sounds like me. Yeah, because otherwise you forget. We're going to wrap up there. One last question to you both. Tolstoy said all happy families are alike, but all unhappy families are unhappy in different ways. Agree or disagree? Agree. I, I, I go agree. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm happy families just throw out different problems depending on the family, but yeah. make them happy and they're all happy. Uh, yeah. And well, I could, if you look at the other theory of happiness as well, mastery, autonomy and purpose is normally where most people get happiness from. So you could probably relate it to where people's purpose is uh, more than anything else. So I don't know. It's one for another day, I guess, Richard. Super. Paul Young of Quilter, Nick Bromley of IP Wealth Management. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.